Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of Jesus, which leads up to Easter Sunday. This morning we're in Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23, and then the section thereafter a bit later. Remember, beloved, these are, these are the very written words of God, words written for you and written for me. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, this past Thursday and Friday, I had the privilege of assisting our own Lance Hagen. Lance Hagen is the varsity boys and girls tennis coach at Trinity Christian Academy. This past Thursday and Friday, was the district tournament and there are so many matches that go on Lance can't be in two places at once and so I assist him a little bit during the season and I assisted him on Thursday and Friday and we had a great time but a rules question came up during one of the matches during a very important match a significant rules question came up see if you know the answer to this question, okay? It was a doubles match. It was a girls match. If we won this match, then this team would qualify to go to the state tournament next year. Or I'm sorry, next week. A lot was riding on this. And during the match, one of our girls hit a great shot that the other team barely got to, mishit the ball, the ball went high in the air, it was clearly going out, this was an important point, and our whole group celebrated from the sideline. 
a euphoric celebration that put us in the position to win. We're slapping high fives. We're hugging. Things are going well. And then there's a dispute on the court. It turns out we didn't even see what happened. When the girl on the other team hit the ball, she mishit it. It went high in the air. That's when we started to celebrate. But Thursday afternoon, it was very windy, okay? Apparently, a massive gust of wind blew the ball back onto the court. The ball fell down, hit the net post. Okay, you know, the net in tennis in the middle. Hits the net post, dribbles on our side. Our girls didn't do anything. They were shocked and watched it happen. Okay? So if the ball hits not the net but the net post in doubles and dribbles onto our side, then bounces twice before we can hit it. Who wins the point? Do they win the point or did we win the point? Thankfully, really, really, I wasn't thankful for this, but the, the supervisor, the referee, was close by. Now, if it were singles and if the ball hits the net post, the net post is considered a permanent fixture in singles, Okay. And the other team would have lost that point because the ball they hit, hit the net post. Ah, but because it was doubles, it's considered part of the net. And therefore, when the ball hit the net post and dribbled onto our, onto our side, that's considered a good shot. And therefore, we lose the point. Okay, it was very disappointing. Thankfully, we won the match. I was coaching that match most of the time. Um, <laughs> It's good, I'll tell you this, it's good if the coaches know the rules. Because in tennis, there are rules and rules and rules and more rules. In fact, according to the governing bodies of tennis, there are four sources of rules. Are you ready? You have the ITF rules. That's the International Tennis Federation rules. 19 pages of rules that govern tennis matches. Then there are USTA rules, United States Tennis Association rules that augment and supplement the ITF rules. 19 pages of ITF rules, 24 pages of USTA rules. Then there's a whole set of unwritten rules called the code. Six more pages of rules. After that, I'm going to quote from the book. Then there are a number of other things not specifically set forth in the rules that are covered by custom and tradition only. ITF rules, USTA rules, code rules, custom and tradition only rules, 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 and rules. I'm going to give you a humorous, humorous example of a rule from the code, the unwritten rules, but since it's written, I don't know why they call it unwritten. Um, here's an example, a humorous example of an unwritten rule from section 38 of the code that deals with one player inadvertently injuring his or her opponent. This is from section 38 of the code, you inadvertently injure your opponent. I'm going to quote from the code. When a player accidentally injures his or her opponent, the opponent 
suffers the consequences. That doesn't seem right, does it? When a player accidentally injures his or her opponent, the opponent suffers the consequence. Then they give the following example. Consider a situation, I'm quoting, consider a situation where the server's racket comes out of his or her hand and accidentally strikes one's opponent and incapacitates one's opponent. (laughs) If one's opponent is unable to resume play within the time limit, there's a whole section of the rules on the time limits. If one's opponent is unable to resume within the time limit, the server wins the match by retirement even though the server causes the injury. So I'm playing Joshua Abaya. Joshua's a very good player. I inadvertently throw my racket out of my hand. It hits him in the head, knocks him out. I win the match. Seems fair to me. If the Pharisees could have seen into the future about how the rules committees would have come up with these rules, they would have been extremely proud of what our tennis friends came up with in terms of all of the rules and regulations of the game of tennis. Because if there was ever a group of people who knew how to create rules and regulations and rules and rules and rules and other rules governing these rules, it was the Pharisees, part of the religious ruling authorities in Israel. Initially, their heart was in the right place, these Pharisees, okay? Like in the Old Testament, there are laws that talks about um, what you should do with a rebellious child, okay? But when does a child actually, when do their actions qualify as being rebellious, okay? The Old Testament talks about um, drunkenness and gluttony, but we're all aware that you know, people can show a rebellious nature in other ways. And so, the scribes and the Pharisees would come up with um, interpretations, interpretations and traditions that would help define, you know, when you cross the line to rebellion, okay? And they would come up with all of these interpretations, these rules and these regulations that would explain how the law of God applied. The scribes or the lawyers of their day were really responsible for this. Thank you, lawyers. That's what they would do. They would find out ways to help define or further explain these Old Testament laws. For example, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So that required God's people to refrain from work on Saturday, right? But what's the million-dollar question? What is work? What qualifies as work? Okay, what causes us to break the commandment? So to help quantify this and define this, Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what was defined as work. And within those 39 categories, there were subcategories about what was defined as work. They came up with hundreds and hundreds hundreds of sub-rules to follow, including how many steps you could take, okay, before you broke the Sabbath, how many letters you could write in a sentence before it constituted work, and on and on and on. And the problem is, they viewed their interpretations as being equally authoritative to the Bible. 
So not only could you not work on the Sabbath, you had to honor their extra laws as if they were part of the Bible, which set the stage for a showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. Okay, so the immediate context of our passage is as follows. Jesus is now big time, big time on the radar, radar of the Pharisees. His popularity is rising. He is drawing crowds. He's got his own disciples. Jesus and John the Baptist have been very critical of the Pharisees and how they led the people of God. And now the Pharisees are making, they're making another 90-mile trip from Jerusalem in the south to Capernaum in the north. That was not an easy journey. And they are growing in their desire to discredit Jesus. They are jealous. They rightly perceive that Jesus is a threat to their authority. And so they are dispatched from Jerusalem to Capernaum to watch him closely and investigate to find out if he is going to slip up and violate this rule or that rule. And in their minds, they finally had him. They finally have him. They had caught his disciples violating the tradition of the elders, okay? In the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples had committed a grievous sin in our text. What grievous sin did the disciples commit according to Mark chapter 7? Did they kill someone? Did they say, rebel against Moses? What did they do? They had the audacity not to wash their hands before lunch. That really is what happened. The disciples had the audacity not to wash their hands before they ate, and that's what the Pharisees needed to bring Jesus down. Okay? Which is to say, what the disciples really did is in the minds of the Pharisees, they committed the sin of not ritually watching their, washing their hands before eating. It was a symbolic gesture, okay? It wasn't for hygiene. According to the tradition of the elders, like you could see in our text, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why don't your disciples follow or obey what? The traditions of the elders. That's what the disciples were guilty of breaking. The tradition of the elders that the Pharisees viewed to be as authoritative as the word of God. According to Jesus, however, the tradition of the elders was not required by the law of God. See, what the Pharisees had done, again, like there's, there's ambiguity regarding some of these laws. Pharisees hate ambiguity. They don't like gray areas. So they were going to try to make concrete things that had some ambiguity to them. So when the Old Testament, you know, the fourth commandment, commands us not to work, okay, they were going to try to define very carefully in almost every conceivable situation what work was. And so in their own minds, they said what they were doing is they were building fences around the commandments, okay? They were going to come up with so many rules and regulations that it wasn't possible 
for you or me to violate the word of God. And they ended up equating those traditions with the word of God. So here's how it happened in this situation. So here's a question for you. In the context of the Old Testament, the only kind of ritual washing that was required was the ritual washing required by the priests in certain situations with temple service. So in certain contexts in the Old Testament, the priest would ceremonially, like ritually, so this wasn't for hygiene, do we understand? This is more ceremonial. This is more ritual. They would wash their hands. That was symbolic of them being set apart for service. They would go through these ritual washings. Then they would offer sacrifices on the part of the people, or they would ritually wash their hands and whatnot before going into the holy place to serve in the temple, okay? How, that's it. That's it in terms of the Old Testament for these ritual washings. How did we go from that to the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples of sinning by not ritually washing their hands before they ate their lunch? How did we go from the Old Testament, just the priests, just in temple worship, to everybody, every meal. Let's look at the text. Let's see how far they took it. Let's look at our notes. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and, what does it say? All the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Okay, do they cite the Old Testament? No. Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. Now, why would they wash coming back from the marketplace? What sense does that make? Well, who might be in the marketplace? Gentiles might be in the marketplace. And if we associate ourselves with Gentiles, we may become unclean. We may have to take a whole bath and immerse ourselves in terms of a ritual washing to become clean. Look at the text. Jesus, or Mark says... This is an editorial comment from Mark in the middle of verse 4. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. What the Pharisees had done is like in the Old Testament, you know, priests would ceremonially wash before offering a sacrifice or going to the holy place. And the Pharisees and the rabbis over the years thought, you know, really, we're... we're we eat before the face of God all the time. Everybody does. So it's really appropriate for everyone to kind of like borrow from what the priests do. It's appropriate for everyone to wash before every meal and to wash all these other things to make sure we are clean and pure. And so they took something that was applied to priests, specifically in service of the temple, and applied it broadly to everyone in everyday life. And the, and the disciples of Jesus were sinning by not following this tradition. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's because that's not from the Bible. The tradition of the elders should not bind the conscience of God's people. 
Now, this is very ironic. And, you know, lest we're too hard on the Pharisees, we are all Pharisees. We all have a Pharisee inside of every one of us, and we do the exact same thing today they did just in different ways. Jesus, of course, being Jesus, shows their inconsistency and reveals their hypocrisy. Look at verses 9 through 13. I mean, this is just amazing. I mean, like, the Bible has what, what scholars and theologians call, like, it's, it's, it's self-attesting. Like, it has its own authority. Look at the wisdom and the brilliance of Jesus when this situation comes up. Verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, and then Mark tells you what that is, that means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then notice what Mark says, and many such things you do. So these Pharisees had developed the tradition. They abused what was called Corban. So like, for example, um, if you did really well in your job in the Old Testament and you got a bonus, you could dedicate that bonus to God. That's a good thing. You would make a vow and you would call it Corban. That is devoted to God. It would go to the church of the Old Testament. But the Pharisees picked up on this and they learned how to work that to their own advantage. And so what they would do is they would claim that all of their finances and all of their resources were Corban. That is devoted to God. And therefore, whatever is devoted to God could not go for the care of their aged or infirmed parents, okay? It could only be used by them. And so when they would invoke the law of Corban, it meant they got to use all of their resources, all of their finances, until they died, then their estate would go to God. But while they were still living, they could utilize all of their wealth, all of their money, and they weren't allowed to help their aging and infirmed parents. He's saying that is the essence of hypocrisy. You create man-made rules and enforce them on the people, and then you don't follow the word and law of God. Very hypocritical. Suffice to say, the scribes and the Pharisees and many of the Jews of Jesus' day did not understand where true purity comes from. The people of the Old Testament, the Jews of every day, uh, Jews of their day, everything, the law was external. You were made pure by following certain laws. Jesus was going to point out that's not the case. Go to panel five quickly in your handout. This whole text goes together.
Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. You know, you create all these laws that don't have binding authority, ridiculous laws, and then you, you disobey foundational laws like, like honoring your father and your mother. You guys are the essence of hypocrites, he says. Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I mean, he was, he was turning the system upside down. He was turning everything on its head. He's saying, it's not, the problem's not out there. It's not about coming into contact with a Pharisee. It's not whether or not you wash your hands before lunch. Okay, impurity is a matter of the heart. It comes from within. Verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Even they didn't get it. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Okay, we don't become unclean by touching things, okay? We become unclean from within, from the sin that resides within. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person? Okay, that's what defiles him. And then Jesus further clarifies, for from within. Okay, and then he further refines, okay, out of the heart of a man, okay? The heart of a man, according to the Bible, is kind of the combination of your mind, your will, and your emotions. All of those three working together is how the Bible defines the heart. For from within, out of the heart, the essence of who you are, it comes from the essence of who you are, out of your heart, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now I'm telling you that would have short-circuited the pharisaical brain. Because they had done everything possible, okay, to, to relate to God through these external things, through law-keeping, through their sacrifices, and Jesus is, 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 is changing their perspective here. These purity laws, these, these ritual washings of the Old Testament, those things were temporary. Those things were provisional by design. Like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, those were temporary, those were provisional, those were instructive, 
They were pedagogical. The sacrifices were to teach the people of God in experiential and visceral ways that God requires atonement. Okay, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't have the power to deal with sin. If the blood of bulls and goats didn't have the power to atone for sin, then why did God institute them? Well, to teach the people, to prepare the people, to set the people up for the fact that atonement has to be made, but not by the blood of bulls and goats, by the true Passover lamb. These ritual washings, those were pedagogical. Those were provisional. Those were teaching tools to teach God's people that they needed to be purified. And Jesus is saying we needed purification from within. We need our hearts purified. Sadly, along the way, that distinction had become lost. And the Pharisees, they really thought these external ritual washings made them pure. And the more rituals, the better. They really believed that that is what made them pure. How wrong they were. Here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the cross, beneficiaries of the new covenant, and we do the same thing all the time. We are a people saved by grace, and then we turn right around and operate as if God loves us. Because of our obedience and our law-keeping. You know, I'm sad to say what happens to me if I actually accomplish three quiet times in a row during the week. I become insufferable, okay? It's like I have long flowing robes through the house. As I ask everyone, how are you doing? How are your quiet times coming? How is your scripture memorization coming? Here's what I'm memorizing. It's amazing how we can use wonderful things and warp those things into instruments of self-worship. It's amazing how we can use these good gifts that God has given us and operate as if those things make us clean and right before him. Our dark hearts can twist and distort anything into a basis for pride. Here's C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis, on what happened to him when he would engage in his quiet times, as it were. He said, quote, During my afternoon meditations, which I at least attempt quite regularly now, he felt convicted to spend time in God's Word reflecting, during my afternoon meditations, which I at least attempt quite regularly now, I have found out ludicrous and terrible things about my own character. Sitting by, watching the sinful thoughts that come to mind that I try to stop, would you believe it, one out of every three is a thought of self-admiration. For example, up comes the thought. What an admirable fellow I am to have repented of these thoughts. So he's taking pride for recognizing his sinful thoughts and repenting of them. He writes, I catch myself posturing 
before the mirror, so to speak, all day long. I pretend I am carefully thinking out what to say to the next pupil, for his good, of course, and then suddenly realize I am really thinking about how frightfully clever I'm going to be and how he will admire me. He's saying, I can't even control this. This is what happens when I let my mind roam. He continues, and then when you force yourself to stop it and try to get your thoughts under control, when you force yourself to stop it, you admire yourself for doing that. There seems to be no end to it. Depth under depth of self-love and self-admiration. We are, every one of us in this room, exactly like the Pharisees in so many ways. We are a people who operate as if our quiet times and our worship attendance, our evangelism efforts, our acts of obedience, we operate as if those things make us clean and acceptable before God. And the better we do, the more judgmental we are. But truth be told, Thankfully, Dave brought up that very convicting quote from Jeremiah. Obviously, from a positional standpoint, when you trust in Jesus, God views us as if all of our sins are forgiven. Okay? When you trust in Jesus, everything that Jesus ever did, all of his righteous deeds, that's transferred to our bank account. All of our sins are transferred to him. So from a positional standpoint, God views us as totally righteous in Jesus Christ. If we die today on the way home from worship, God would allow us into heaven, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. But from a practical standpoint... I'm talking about a practical standpoint now. Our hearts are black with sin. We are more sinful than we can possibly conceive. In fact, we could live 50 lifetimes, okay, operating according to the principles of the Christian life and never become fully mature. Beloved, there's only one person we can go to to grow us and mature us and remind us where purity comes from, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. More than anything else, more than your acts of obedience and your religiosity, what the Lord Jesus Christ is after. He's after your heart, and he's after mine. He's interested in changing us from the inside out. He is interested in molding us and conforming us more and more into the image and likeness and character of Jesus. The miracle of the Christian life is that the Holy Spirit over time begins to change our dark hearts and mold us more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And I'll end with this. In my experience, friends, in my experience, change often happens 
through a growing awareness of my sinfulness. Beloved, if we didn't have the Lord Jesus, there wouldn't be hope for any of us. He is what makes us clean. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who bears with us and patiently works with us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his life and his death. We thank you for his atonement that makes us clean, makes us clean positionally. We thank you for how his spirit works within our hearts to renovate us and grow us and mature us. Father, convict us when we manifest the pride and hubris and judgmental spirit of the Pharisees. Father, it's not far beneath the surface for any of us. Humble us, grow us, mature us, Holy Spirit. Make us more like Jesus. We pray in his matchless name. Amen and amen.